Hi, this is Amanda. And this is Lindsay. We're True Creeps. Where the stories are true. And the creeps are real. We'll cover stories from grotesque gore. To the possibly plausible paranormal. To horrifying history. To tense and terrible true crime. And everything else that goes bump in the night. We want you to join us while we creep. We cover mature topics. Listener discretion is advised. Hello, everyone, and welcome to our fifth episode about the Texas Killing Fields. We're almost done, Lindsay. I feel like we'll never be done because we still have, after this, another decade and a serial killer. So we have a couple still. The end is in sight. I'm hoping it just stops. So after we we talk about the ones that have already been murdered, we're hoping no additional murders happen in this area ever again. Oh, gosh. If you've already listened to other Texas Killing Fields episodes, welcome back. If not, we have four prior episodes that you can go and listen to. And just a quick refresher of what the Texas Killing Field is. We're going to be covering today one part of it, and we're going to be touching on the killers and victims of the Texas Killing Fields from the 1990s and our parameters of our research. We looked at the victims that were found on the stretch of the I-40 between Galveston and League City in Texas. We also include people who were like within 30 minutes of it. Yeah. In our research, we found 47 women who had disappeared or had been murdered between 1974 and 2020 in this area. Their ages ranged from nine years old to 57 at the time of their disappearances. Along Calder Road in League City, Texas, there's a small field that has been dubbed the Texas Killing Field because the remains of four women had been found there. A larger expanse has begun to be known as the Texas Killing Fields, which includes not only the field off of Calder Road, but expands to the entire stretch of I-45 going from Galveston to Houston and the area surrounding it. So today we will be covering the cases in the 90s. And if you haven't listened to prior episodes about the Texas Killing Fields, you can start here. There's no need to go through and listen to the other ones beforehand, but it could help to get just a better idea of what's happening in this area. Any of the ones that we've already covered that can have updates will be included in our True Crime Digest going forward. Since some of these cases are a little newer, some of them actually have a lot more available information than some of the ones that we've already covered. Yeah, and I think one of the things that's interesting of the Texas Killing Fields is that it's a big subject. There's a reason why we're going to have, I want to think, what, seven or eight episodes on it total, and why Amanda and I researched, then first recorded hours of content, and they went, "Mm, not good enough. And then came back to it months later because we wanted to get a good handle on it. And so I bring that up because when this is done, we'll need another big topic that we were talking to. So if there's a case or a similar situation where there's an area where there's lots of murders or something like that that you're interested in, where you would like to hear multiple episodes covering it, feel free to shoot us an email, send us a message on Instagram, carrier pigeon, all of the things. So let's get into it. So the first murders we're going to talk about are that of Lynette Bibbs and Tamara Ellen Fisher. Unfortunately, there's not a lot of information out about this. I feel like I have like more hurt in my heart when there's less information because it feels like the world's forgetting. And that makes me very, very sad. Yeah. So Lynette was 14 and Tamara was 15. On February 1st of 1996, both girls went to a club and then to a hotel. And we're thinking it was likely a teen club since they were younger. When we were looking for updates, one of the things that I had did is I looked at Facebook, see if I could find any information 
So we couldn't find much on their disappearance even now, which is just so heartbreaking. But there was a post from May of this year, 2021, with some possible details. And when looking at it, we were a little skeptical at first, but Lynette's family had commented on it. And we thought if they aren't disputing the facts here, then it's likely credible. So from the post, it said that Tamara's mother had begged her not to go out that night with a 22-year-old man. He was later interviewed, but it was said that he had left the girls at the hotel and that they were gone by the time he returned, but his name was not available. Two days after their disappearance, the girls' remains were found off of a dirt road. Lynette had a gunshot to the back of her head. She was fully clothed but missing one shoe. There were no signs of sexual assault. 150 yards away, Tamara was found with a shot in the forehead and below her left ear. She was wearing a cotton blouse and clear plastic sandals. There was also no signs of sexual assault with her. Blood trailed from Tamara's body to the dirt road, but there was no blood leading away from Lynette's. So authorities weren't sure if they were shot in the woods or if their bodies had been dumped there. Some believe that Lynette was shot first and then Tamara tried to run. The murders were never solved. This is not related, but still interesting. So Lynette's mother, Verlina Bibbs, was murdered 10 years before Lynette was, and her body was found in Laporte in a field. Her murder also wasn't solved. In addition, Tamara's brother, David, was murdered in 2020. That's just so much loss for one family. It's so sad. Yeah, I stumbled upon the like dedication page to her brother, David, and it just had like sweet pictures of him with his family. And it just made me really sad that that family is going through it all over again. Yeah. The next one we're going to discuss is the murder of Crystal Baker. And Crystal was only 13 at the time of her death. An interesting note about Crystal, after her death, her paternal uncle researched the Baker's heritage and found that the family was distant relatives to Marilyn Monroe. How interesting. Yeah. And if you think about it, Marilyn Monroe's name was Norma Jean Baker and then Crystal Baker. Yeah. So Marilyn would have been considered Crystal's great aunt if this is true. Oh, so that's like a close relative. Mm-hmm. So just an interesting note, though, I thought that possibly even like after her death might have gotten more people to really look at this. Yeah. So Crystal's mom and her father were divorced. Her mother, her name's Jeannie. She was a hairdresser. And Crystal would spend every other weekend with her dad in his apartment. So kind of joint custody. Yeah. That spring, Crystal started getting bullied at school. And they believed that it was because she developed early and the girls at school were starting to just be horrible and verbally abusive towards her. So at one point, she had gotten cornered at the park by some of these girls and they ganged up on her, pulled her hair. It was just a really horrible situation. What little monsters. Right. So Jeannie obviously was very worried about her daughter and her safety and asked her mother if Crystal could come stay with her and finish out the school year in a different school. Crystal's grandmother's house was in Texas City. So it meant not only a new school, it would be a whole new district altogether. Yeah. So Crystal moved in with her grandmother to finish out the school year. On March 5th of 1996, she woke up and then called her mom and told her she wasn't feeling well. Jeannie believed her based off of her voice and said that she would make Crystal a doctor's appointment later that afternoon and to just stay in bed. Crystal was known for getting reoccurring ear infections, so it sounded like this happened pretty frequently. Jeannie that day had a full schedule, though. So she planned to go to work, then to go pick up Crystal and take her to the doctor after work. Crystal then, right after hanging up with her mom, called her dad and asked if he could take her to a friend's house. Oh. Because she needed to pick up some shoes that she had left there. Mm. Yeah. She explained that she had stayed home from school due to the ear infection. And that her friend had lived in Bio Vista, which when I Googled it, it's about a 10 minute drive from Texas City. 
Google Maps had it only about like five and a half miles away. So these shoes were super important to Crystal because they were her first pair of heels. And she was going to ask her grandmother, but she was also working that day. Crystal's father, his name's Johnny, he declined because he had just finished a full night at the plant and wanted to go to sleep. So understandably, Crystal was a little disappointed. No one wants to drive her to go get her shoes. So around 2 p.m. that day, Crystal and her grandmother got into an argument in the driveway. Her grandmother was upset that Crystal had stayed home from school and her grandmother refused to drive her to her friend's house, which I feel like is kind of reasonable, right? You're like, if you're too sick to go to school, you're too sick to go pick up your shoes. Yeah. Crystal was frustrated and walked away and she was headed south on Pecan Drive towards Texas Avenue. Her grandmother was also frustrated, so she went inside to call Texas City Police and to ask an officer to go get Crystal and bring her home. So Crystal walked to a tire store that was close by, and it was on the corner of Pecan Drive and Texas Avenue, so it wasn't too far from I-45. And when she went in, she asked if she could use their phone. She called her mom and asked for a ride to her friend's house. Jeannie declined because she still had clients and told Crystal to go back to her grandmother's house and that she would pick her up later to go to the doctor. Crystal agreed to go back to her grandmother's house to, quote, make peace. Crystal then called her brother, her sister, and a friend asking for a ride to her friend's house. All declined and the tire shop employee asked her to not tie up the phone. I love that she was just like, I'm going to call literally everyone I know on the store phone. Yeah. I mean, think about it, though. In, in the 90s, when you didn't have a cell phone like glued to your hand and you were somewhere needing to make a call or like something came up or you needed to notify someone you were going to be late. Yeah. It was payphone or if you were in a small shop, that was like a common thing. Yeah. Well, and also that was a time when you still had people's numbers memorized. Yeah, that's true. Right. What an odd thing. Like Ben and I purposely memorized each other's phone numbers in case of emergency. We would know like the number to call. Yeah, it's weird to think about that most people can't recite numbers anymore. Yeah. So after leaving, Crystal walked east along Texas Avenue. The walk to her friend's house from there was about five miles away, and it meant that she would be walking on two busy roads that didn't have any sidewalks. So she just decided, I'm just going to go. I looked it up on Google Maps just because I wanted to understand this area a little bit more. And I believe Crystal's grandmother's house would have been located in the housing behind the tire shop. Oh. And then, yeah, as she would be walking, she would be walking in these like odd areas that realistically shouldn't have someone walking on them. While at home, her grandmother was talking to an officer asking him to bring Crystal home because she didn't have permission to leave. The officer agreed to go look for her. But when he returned a little while later, he was like, I couldn't find her. At 3 p.m., Jeannie called her mom to tell her about the doctor's appointment coming up that afternoon. Crystal's grandma said, well, Crystal's not home. She talked to Jeannie about the argument, said, you know, everything about the shoes and that she probably went to the friend's house, but she hadn't yet returned. Jeannie wasn't worried at this point because she's like, all right, I'm just going to call Crystal's friends between clients and hope that I get a hold of her. However, as she was doing so, none of her friends had seen her. Now she started to get a little worried. So Jeannie called Texas City Police. The officer sounded not concerned. And he's just like, don't worry. She'll probably be home in a couple hours. She probably just went to the friend's house. So, you know, a teenage girl, you're wondering where she is. Is she at the friend's house? Maybe the friends are lying. So I'm sure she was like worried, but she's like, okay, you know, the officer kind of talked her down. After work, Jeannie called her mom and Crystal's dad, and no one had yet heard from Crystal. She then drove to Crystal's friend's house that was in Bayou Vista. And they had said that they, yes, had asked Crystal to come over. And she said she was going to, but she never showed up. 
Jeannie then drove to Galveston Island to look around. After not seeing Crystal, she headed home, hoping that maybe she'll call, maybe she's somewhere with friends. Crystal's best friend, Randall, then came over looking for Crystal. So at this point, Jeannie got really worried because Randall was that friend that always knows where Crystal is. And if he can't find her, then yeah, no one actually knows. Jeannie then called Texas City Police again and was told again, don't worry. That same evening, 74 miles northeast of Texas City, a body was found. Google Maps shows that this area was maybe a little over an hour away from the tire shop she was last seen at. Bradley Moon was an investigator who responded to that call about the body. Crystal's body was found under a bridge where I-10 went over Trinity River. The body was awkwardly spread out on the shoulder of the area. The initial call came in around 5 p.m., which is about three hours after Crystal had left her grandmother's house, from a couple who had gone fishing in the Trinity River. Her body was on its stomach and her hair was kind of like laid out and her legs were flung all about. Her dress was hiked up to her waist and she still had her underwear on. Her feet were bare. She had scrapes and bruises all over her limbs, and her face looked like she had been beaten up. There was a thick, dark band around her neck that formed a red slash mark. Investigators tried to find anything to help identify who it was. Around the same time, Jeannie was filing a missing persons report, and the officers listed Crystal as a runaway, which blows my mind, considering she was, like, just trying to find, like, how to get her shoes back. That doesn't sound like, not that there's runaway behavior by any means, but It certainly doesn't seem like that's what she was doing. No. And the fact that them just dismissing Jeannie calling and just saying, oh, she's just a runaway, caused this to happen where they can't identify her is infuriating. Exactly. Exactly. So on March 6th, there was an autopsy performed on the, at that point, unidentified body. And the body was labeled as Jane Doe. During the autopsy, her dress, underwear, and scrapings from her fingernails were placed in evidence bags. The autopsy noted that there were signs she had been sexually assaulted and also that she had been suffocated. The cause of death was determined to be ligature strangulation. Jeannie continued to check in with police, and they still continued to not seem worried. They still believed she was a runaway. So Jeannie remembered that one of Crystal's friends had actually run away the year before, and Crystal had said that she would never put her mom through that after seeing how much pain it had caused that family. So Jeannie and her mom continued the search and began making flyers. It's still also like we talk about it every time we talk about the next skilling fields, but the idea that police think that they know better than a parent on whether a child would run away. I mean, okay, I'm not a parent, so I can't like 100% say, but I would imagine if I had a kid and I thought that they were going to, that they actually ran away, I would want different efforts, right? There's a different type of search for that child if they've run away versus a child that is missing. Right. So it's not that you care less. It's just that it's a different investigation. And I would want any investigation to be successful in moving my child home. Right. So the idea that they're just like, no, you don't know. Infuriating. Exactly. It is. So Brad Moon emailed these photos and the information about Jane Doe to other departments. So in the surrounding area, like you should. No one knows why the Texas City Police Department didn't notice that the description matched between Jane Doe and Crystal, but they didn't notice. It's speculated because of how they labeled her report being a runaway and not necessarily a missing person. So it just didn't happen. They didn't make the connection. Yeah. So on March 21st, someone at the Texas City Police Department finally 
noticed the Chambers County report on Jane Doe and they contacted Bradley Moon and he traveled to Texas City with the report. An officer notified Jeannie that they had some pictures they wanted her to look at. I want to emphasize this more. They did not tell her what she would be looking at. They just said, we have pictures we need you to look at. She wasn't prepared. That's so terrible. Like, that makes me want to fight someone. Mm -hmm. So she looks at these pictures and at first she's like, that's not Crystal. And then slowly she realized, oh my gosh, that's my daughter. How could you do that to someone? It still like makes me feel like chills. Yeah. So Jeannie then goes home and she breaks down. Jeannie reaches out to Bradley Moon and asks him, did Crystal have her shoes on when they found her? And he responded, no, she was barefoot. And I found the reason why she asked this question was a couple weeks before Crystal went missing. They were discussing what Crystal would do in a situation where someone was trying to do something to her. And her response to her mother was, quote, I'd scream really loud, kick my shoes off and start running. I hate that we live in a world where you have to have a conversation with your daughter about what you would do in like XYZ situations because it is unsafe to be a woman in America. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's just it's heartbreaking. So Jeannie, her mother and Crystal's father all wished they had put what they were doing down that day to drive her to her friend's house to pick up those shoes. Of course. Of course. That's not something that should happen when you walk to your friend's house. No. And it's sad that they kind of like, you know, in a way blame themselves for not putting work away or having to sleep after working all night. Yeah. I mean, she she had like an adolescent request, Mm -hmm. right? Like it wasn't, they could not have known that this is what would have happened. No. Especially she had called from her grandmother's house where she was safe. And then she called from a store that was right around the corner where she was also presumably safe. So it's not as though there was any point where she seemed like she was in imminent danger. Right. So it's not their fault, not even a little bit. So Jeannie prepared a memorial service for her daughter. She didn't have much money, but she purchased a white wedding dress with a high neckline and long sleeves to cover all of the bruises and the neck wound on Crystal. Crystal was then cremated. The next day, Brad Moon took Crystal's dress, underwear, and the scrapings to Jefferson County Regional Crime Lab, and it was logged. The processing took months, but the samples from the dress tested negative for blood, semen, and saliva. The last possibility was the scrapings from underneath her her fingernails. However, DNA testing was still not where it is now, and few labs could handle that type of testing. There was one facility in Austin, but they would not analyze the DNA until the authorities had a suspect, which interesting that they wouldn't use it to match with people who were already in the system. They were like, we will match it. I mean, it also could have been the amount of DNA they had could have been that like they had one shot. Yeah. So that's what it makes me think of. The Jefferson County lab took the scrapings and froze them while they waited for the police to find a suspect. Brad Moon picked up the dress and underwear and checked it into the evidence room at the Chambers County Sheriff's Office. Moon also sent the case to Quantico, Virginia, to the Behavioral Sciences Division of the FBI to analyze it. The profile came back and said it could be a serial killer, as always, between the ages of 25 and 45, who was white since people typically choose victims of their own race. All I think of is like, thanks, Reed. Yeah. I will say that like of the cases we've talked about, this seems like a really good chain of custody on evidence. Better than we've seen in a long time, I feel like, especially considering there's been like phones that have gone missing. And right. No, this this case seems like they did what they could. 
Yeah. That they stored everything properly. They kept everything and they really tried to do what they could to find DNA evidence and try to match it to someone. But unfortunately, they were the ones that were like told no this time, not the family. Yeah. There was an evidence officer named Sherry Wilcox and she worked with Brad Moon. She got a hold of the case and she wanted to find out who killed Crystal. She said, quote, once I had the file in my hands, I couldn't put it away. Crystal's photos bothered me. If it were my daughter, I'd want to know who did this to her. You're going to really like Sherry. She reminds me of the investigators with the Samuel Little case. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Where she's like, this is weird. We need to figure this out. So let's fast forward now to 2002. Jeannie hired a private investigator to look into the case. She had seen headlines on the news and on TV about how DNA was making differences in criminal investigations, including cold cases. So she's like, hey, I need someone to look into this. So as Wilcox made the copies of the files for the private investigator, she again got sucked into the case. Instead of just refiling it away, she actually kept it on her desk so that she could read through it whenever she had extra time. So I feel like this is like one of the first people that we're talking about that truly just cared about someone enough to yeah make it her daily routine, you know, to read over this case. So while looking over the case again, Wilcox noticed a stain on Crystal's underwear that she had wondered if it had actually been tested. So when she researched it, they had been tested with the dress and nothing had been found. But she knew DNA testing had gotten a bit better since the last time it had been tested and she wanted to get it retested. She located the items, they were stored properly, and took them to Houston to the Texas Department of Public Safety Lab. The clerk at the counter noticed the insignia that was on the evidence envelope and was like, hey, was that already tested? And so Wilcox is like, well, yeah, but I want it. I want this to be tested. So she was told that protocol ruled against it because there's nothing new in the case. There's no new suspects, nothing like that. So there's no real justification to spend the tax dollars to retest that item. I hate that so much. But when you also are aware of the untested rape kits that are in backlogs, like I get it. Like it sucks, but I kind of get it. Yeah, I get it to a point just because the DNA testing had gotten better. Yeah, that's true. So it's like, well, when we tested it before in the 90s, it wasn't where it is now. But yeah, like you said, like it's it's hard. Like how do you decide what gets tested and what doesn't? So Wilcox then just had to take the evidence back. So again, she had it on her desk. It sat there until 2009. On February 6, 2009, she had evidence from an unrelated case that she had to transport to that lab again. And she decided, you know what, I'm just going to take Crystal stuff again. But this time she repackaged them so that insignia was gone. I love it. She ordered a bodily fluid test for the items and dropped it off. The lab used ultraviolet lights to find spots of interest. Odd fact that I found while researching this case. Rather than fading with age, semen stains become more fluorescent when they sit. Blink, blink. Right? Very weird. It's a fact that now lives in our heads. Yes. Yeah, the things that we learn. So... The lab tech tested areas with a chemical to see if there's any traces of bodily fluids. And they found that there was a weak reaction to one of the chemicals. The area around the dress collar is where they found it. Samples were cut out and sent to the DNA lab for analysis. Eight months later, this is how long things take. Eight months later in August, the lab called Wilcox to say there's a DNA profile found. There was semen on the dress. Wilcox cried when she told Moon about the evidence that was finally found. 
Yeah. So days later, Wilcox and Moon met with Janie and Johnny to explain what had been found. And that they also asked for samples so that they knew what DNA to exclude. And this was really hard for Jeannie because she, before this, didn't know that Crystal had been sexually assaulted. And that just hurts your heart. The fact that they're like, hey, we found something that might get your daughter justice. But now there's this horrible truth that you have to reconcile with. It's bad enough losing your baby. It's bad enough. But then we've talked about this several times now. But the fact that when someone is murdered, the family doesn't always get details either until trial. Yeah. Or in different various ways. It's just so not fair to those families. It's not a good detail to know, but it's just they deserve to know. We talked about it with Tammy Daybell's autopsy and her children not having gotten copies of the autopsy prior to it being released or, you know, when it originally was finished. And I have to say, like, look, I do believe that families have a right to know what happened to their loved one. But I think sometimes it's really easy to think, oh, the legal system that we have is in place to get justice for victims. And while that is true, there certainly seems to be the recurring theme that getting dangerous people off of the streets is more important than families knowing details. And I feel like sometimes that feels right and sometimes it doesn't. And it's one of the things when people talk about like victims' rights and stuff. It's like it's very important, no doubt. But also in the same respect, If you want justice for your family member, sometimes you have to be comfortable in the not knowing because if there's details that only the person who did it could give, like if someone confesses, if everybody already knew what happened, then people could give false confessions like Henry Lee Lucas did or how some people think Ed Bell did. I hate it. I absolutely hate it. But I also feel like it's like a necessary sadness to be able to get justice. I think it's case by case. I think that there's certain cases like like when you said Vallow. That's a high profile, just people are running crazy while they're trying to get a jury, right? Mm-hmm. In this case, I feel like just even saying she was sexually assaulted, but maybe not every detail of it. You know, like there's a happy medium to be able to like get the information to the family, but also keep some hidden away for the trial later on. You know, I completely agree with you. I think broad strokes of like what happened are okay. But then again, taking it back to this high profile case, they didn't even say whether Tammy Daybell was originally, whether they were ruling it a homicide or not, right? And that was on purpose because they later press charges. So the broad strokes might even be too detailed in some situations for like future things. But but back to this, I, I hard either way. It's going to be terrible and awful whether they find it at a trial or beforehand. But so Jeannie told them to take her DNA and to do what they needed to do, but to not tell her who did it until they're in jail, which fair, fair. Yeah. So Wilcox tracked down the fingernail scrapings and got them tested right around Christmas time in 2009. A few months into 2010, they came back and the DNA from the fingernail scrapings matched Crystal's dress. So they had an exact match from the same source, and it was an unknown black male. So the profile was wrong. Yeah, I was very disappointed in Reed in my head. Damn it, Reed. So Wilcox entered the DNA findings into CODIS. On September 15th of 2010, Wilcox received a call about a match, and his name was Kevin Edison Smith. And just fuck this guy. Like, we're going to get into it, but like, let's just start like, fuck this guy. Yeah. The reason why his DNA was in the system was because in January of 2010, he had been arrested in Louisiana on a felony drug possession charge. In Texas, DNA was only put on file when the suspect was convicted of sexual offenses and murders. But in some states, they do it with all felony arrests. So fortunately, they did in Louisiana put his DNA in for a drug possession charge. So even a couple of years ago, Texas only connected DNA from certain felony offenses, which wild, right? Like just crazy. So in 2019, the Crystal Jean Baker Act was enacted 
And what it did was it authorized the collection of DNA samples from individuals charged within 24 qualifying felonies and compared the samples against CODIS. That's interesting. Yeah. You know how when we talk about like someone gets murdered and it's almost like something changes because of that? The family works to do something. This is one of those cases where they were able to change it to where more DNA is going to be on file to help catch other criminals. I think what's interesting is that when we look at America, like you and I living in America, it feels like a thing that has always been here. Correct? Yeah. But like we're still kind of a baby country when you think about it compared to a lot of nations all over the world. So the fact that like we don't have all of this right kind of makes sense because I feel like we're in like an awkward adolescence phase of our country. And I'm hoping we're going to grow out of it into a better time generally. But in terms of like, why is it that we have to have horrible things that happen before we have a system that protects people? I hate it. Right. Yeah. Like where we finally look at it. Yeah. Yeah. And it, it's only two. I, I didn't look at every single qualifying felony. But there's 24 of them that qualify to get these samples tested against CODIS. And even still, everyone has rights. And then it's kind of like a debate on, is it just to take samples and keep them in this? It's just, it's a weird debate. I mean, I think, look, I love a right to privacy conversation. Don't even get me started on genealogy tests. I'm glad that we've caught serial killers from them, but I will not be submitting my DNA willingly to any third party because in case you did not know, you fucked. Like you've basically given up your right to privacy if you're giving out your DNA to people. Just as a note, um, feel very strongly against it. But I think it's interesting because when you watch a crime show, how many times you're like, we ran them through the system. And they don't ever really say what system, but it's some like convict DNA system that apparently like if you ever jaywalked, your fingerprints are on file, right? Like th- that's kind of what it acts like, right? So you think like, yeah, convicted criminal DNA go in machine, right? Put victim DNA in machine or put like evidence DNA in machine. They match, right? Like it feels like it should be that simple, but it's really not. Right. So Kevin Edson Smith, he had no prior sex offenses or violent crimes on record. He was arrested on September 22nd, 2010, and it was his 45th birthday. Well deserved. Happy fucking birthday, you asshole. Yeah. The district attorney, her name was Cheryl, she agreed to take the death penalty off the table in exchange for the truth about his involvement. Okay. But this only applied to the specific case. If there were others... That could be changed. So Smith then gave his story about that day. He said he had been drinking with friends after work at the convenience store off of Texas Avenue. He mentioned that he would often get drunk and then go and pick up some sex workers. Okay, so he's drinking and driving. Mm -hmm. Yep. That particular day, he was smoking and drinking when he saw Crystal walking down the highway. He bought a 24-ounce beer for the road and then got into his truck. He pulled over and talked to Crystal and offered her a ride. He claims that Crystal willingly got into his truck into the passenger seat. They talked about sex and she had claimed to him to be 18. In his mind, he believed her to be a sex worker. So he then asked for some things to be performed. She obviously did not want to and just clearly said, I want to ride to my friend's house. So can I just tell you what makes me so fucking mad? No, you cannot tell me. I don't care what 13 year old it is. You cannot tell me a 13 year old looks like an adult. No 13 year old looks like an adult. It's not a thing. And men who act like they can't tell when girls are like severe, like very underage in my mind are liars. Yeah, I could see a little bit older and even like nowadays with crazy makeup and ridiculous things that can be done, right? 
I don't think a 13 year old even nowadays looks like an 18 year old. Yeah. Yeah. Even if they're like, they've like gone through puberty a little quicker than their peers, like they're still not going to look like they're 18 years old. Yeah. Yeah. So he drove a short distance and then pulled behind a gas station. He promised Crystal that he would pay her. And then he said, quote, Crystal freaked out, just started getting crazy. I was trying to restrain her. I was drunk. Crystal fought him the best that she could, and he just forced himself on her. She kicked and she hit. Then he says, quote, I grabbed her. I choked her. The next thing I knew, she stopped breathing. I hate him. Yeah, he's an awful human. When asked more about what happened, he admitted that he used a strap like to strangle her. He then drove to the Trinity River Bridge and threw her body out of the truck and then just drove away. And there's some audio from him talking about what happened. And there's actually a 48 Hours Mystery episode that included some of the audio. So I did listen to it. Yeah. And he pretty much just blames Crystal for what happened. Yeah. Well, even like the way the story is framed, he's like, well, she looked older. I thought that she was a sex worker. I'm like, no, you didn't. No, you didn't think this 13 year old, you know, just. Yeah. Yeah. So another woman came forward and said that Smith had raped her at gunpoint. And the trial started in April of 2012. During the trial, Dr. Dwayne Arthur Wolf of the Harris County Medical Examiner's Office reviewed the autopsy. He said that Crystal suffered a slow death. It also came up that she might not have entered his truck voluntarily. The jury found him guilty, clearly. He received a life sentence. One scary thing that I did find about Smith while researching him is that he lived in 17 different cities over four different states, and he definitely could be connected to other crimes. Yeah. And then just a note, he lived in Phoenix in 2003 and in 2006. He also like, it doesn't sound like this is something that was like wholly unusual for him, right? Like I would imagine, well, first off, like there was another instance of him raping someone with a threat of force, but also just like the fact that he seemed to have his story down because he starts with, oh, like I had been drinking, but I picked her up and I had all these like cognizant thoughts. And he ends with, well, I was drunk and out of control, right? Right. And it seems like he tries to like lay the foundation for that and then be like, but I was drunk and out of control. And I um just the idea that you you could say you're out of control, but you're actually using like a piece of fabric or a strap or anything to strangle someone that tells me you're in control. Exactly. Yeah. He, he could have stopped himself. Yeah. Because that's not an accidental thing you pick up. Exactly. If you wanted to. He's a fuck. Next, we're going to discuss the murder of Laura Smither. And so she was a 12 year old girl who loved ballet. And she trained at the Houston Ballet Academy, and her instructor suggested working out to increase her stamina. So her father, Bob, and her brother, David, would exercise with her. On April 3rd of 1997, Laura asked her mother, Gay, if she could go for her jog while her mother had been cooking breakfast. She promised to be back for the pancakes, and her mom was like, great, go for a jog. But she never came back home. This was very unlike her. She was reliable, and she didn't really, like, get home late. And especially, right, it was breakfast. So, like, where was she going? Yeah, she had finished making breakfast and they're like, where could she be? And it sounded like it was one of the first times where she asked at this particular moment, hey, I have some time. Can I go and jog? And it was just she wanted to be better at ballet. Like, that's what we leave it up to. She was trying to do her best. And this is what happened. Yeah. Obviously, they were worried about her, right? So her father got in the car and he went to look for her, but he didn't find her. They called police. And at about 9.55 in the morning, the officer came and took the report. 
After he left, the family continued their search, driving around and asking everyone if they'd seen Laura. So they made flyers with her picture to hand out. Pretty soon after, neighbors came by to help with the search. They knocked on doors and they went to the, like, the nearby subdivision so they could hand out flyers and ask if people had seen her. So when Bob talked to the police, they told him, oh, don't worry. And they implied that she was a runaway. So another instance where they're like, she just went to start a new life on her own, even though this is not like her at all. A 12-year-old. A 12-year-old. She's gone to start a new life. So the Smithers also knew the chief of the campus police for the, the local community college. And on their behalf, he called Friendswood Police Department's captain to vouch for the family and say, this is really unlike Lara. She's not a runaway. And so once the captain of the Fremwood Speedy heard this, he reassigned all 39 of his officers to help with the search and requested the FBI. Fuck you for not listening. I'm jumping a lot of F-bombs because I feel like very seriously about this tonight. But like, it makes me very angry that clearly they could. They could and they didn't. Yeah, exactly. And that they dismissed it at first where maybe there were more clues at that time or maybe there was something that could have been done earlier. Yes. In this case, I don't think so. But what what other cases was something washed away? Mm-hmm. Or yeah, I guess in this one, too, that day it had rained, from what I understand. So possibly maybe there was something out there that they could have found had they done it right away. And also, here's the other part, is that stop telling people that their child ran away. Stop telling people that their child, well, yeah, decided to leave them when that is not who they are. So by that evening, there was more than 100 neighbors who were helping with the search. At night, Bob and Gay continued the search with flashlights. They even received a tip around midnight from a man that said he was a psychic. And they even, like, followed that and see if that led anywhere. They didn't come home until 4 a.m. So, like, what an unbelievably, like, long and exhausting day. Yeah. So the next day, more people came to volunteer and to help. They searched dangerous snake-filled fields in the rain. One woman even got bitten by a snake, but since it didn't go through her shoe, she just kept on looking, which, very sweet. That's dedication. Right? Yeah. So the search continued day after day. And the Texas New Mexico Power Company even donated a vacant building to be used as, as volunteer headquarters for the search. Bob called the number up for the building and someone answered, Lara Recovery Center. Oh, chills. So on another note, much like Tim Miller mm-hmm. and his Lara, the Smithers went on to form the Lara Recovery Center, which is a mobile office that goes on site around the country wherever there is a search for a missing child. Whew, it's really hard. It's hard. And I tried to look it up. It looks like their website isn't coming up any longer. Yeah. But I feel like I've heard the name come up in the recent years. So I'm wondering if maybe they're not operating as big as they used to, but they're still in the background helping people. Yeah, I would be interested to know crime statistics for this last year and this year, like whether there's been any change because kids aren't out, right? Oh, interesting. Yeah. Right. People aren't like letting their kids go places. So it feels like maybe kids might be a little safer. Hopefully. I would hope. I would hope. So if anything good could come from this, it could be that. So they used the notes that they had made during the search for Laura to draw up a handbook detailing how to harness a community to help law enforcement. And I think like what a powerful resource, because as we're reading this, right, we're talking about like volunteers who are dedicated and then having a local business donate a building. That's a big deal. That's a very big deal. And that's a big effort. Yeah. And the idea that we think that police are supposed to do this on their own. But like when someone's missing, the community can step in. If people can, they should help. Right. Just we talked about just like Daniel Robinson, the search for him is largely volunteers who are searching, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, they've been having searches on the weekends. 
So over more than two weeks, somewhere around 6,000 people volunteered to search for Laura, and they searched everywhere, including those fields that you talked about and all of the surrounding area around Friendswood. On April 20th, they decided that the search had to end. They met at Friendswood Town Hall at 4 p.m. to have an official event to end it. During the event, Chief Stout, he was there, and he basically was getting up to take the stage to thank all the volunteers for their hard work. However, during his speech, his pager went off, and then he immediately left. Around 10 p.m., he rang the Smithers doorbell and alerted them that there was a body that had been found, and it was found by a man and his son. They were out training their dog near a retention pond, and it was located 14 miles north of their home. Volunteers had actually been very close to the area, but never quite made it that far. The body was nude except for her socks, and it was in three feet of water wedged inside of a drainage pipe. And the water was running across the upper part of her body. The current had stripped much of the flesh from her waist up. But even with that being stripped away, there were signs that it was indeed Laura, including things like the braces on her teeth. The medical examiner noted indications of trauma around the neck, like possible strangulation, along with some blunt impact injuries, hemorrhages on the lower body. Just a lot had happened to her. It was listed as a homicide, and the time of death is consistent with the time of the abduction or her disappearance. So it seems like she was killed pretty quickly. Yeah. So something that stood out to me that I I think we've touched on before, but not with a specific case. So in the book, Deliver Us, which is about the Texas killing fields, she talks a little bit about how David, who was Laura's brother, dealt with the situation, and it just really made an impact to me. What he said was, siblings are often the ones forgotten in these cases. There's an orphan experience a lot of us go through. We don't just lose our siblings, but we lose our parents for a time because they're grieving. And it made me just double sad that, you know, David not only lost his sister, at this time, his parents... Yeah. You know, understandably are grieving for the sister. And he just kind of was left alone. I'm also like, I can't imagine losing one of my siblings as an adult. But as a kid, like you expect to have like this full life and like you're going to see them grow up and you're going to grow up together and like just missing that. Yeah, it's awful. So they had William Lewis Reese as a suspect. And there's a few reasons to this, but he had been paroled out of prison in Oklahoma after serving 10 years for kidnapping and rape. He had been in the area at the time that Laura went for her jog, and he was working as a bulldozer operator, and he had left the work site early because of the rain. So just another little note, in August, Gay and Bob were approached to help in organizing the search for a teenager named Jessica Kane. And a neighbor of Jessica's came to their door and pleaded for help. And actually, uh, sadly enough, we're going to include Jessica's case and how it relates to this in just a few minutes. So before we talk about Jessica, we're going to talk about the attempted murder of Sandra Sapball. So she was 19 at the time, and she worked as a dancer. On May 17th of 1997, she pulled up to a convenience store, and it was called The Stop and Go. And she had dropped she had just dropped off her kids with their grandparents and she was driving a red Dodge Astro minivan. She just moved her and her children's belongings out of their apartment that she had shared just until recently with her husband. So their plan was to rent a room at the Motel 6 right across the street from the stop and go. But it was booked. So she decided to stop and call a friend and nearby payphone. When she got out of the van, she noticed a guy was watching her and he was wearing jeans, a white short sleeve T-shirt and a black cowboy hat. 
He was standing beside an oversized white pickup truck, a dually with four wheels on the rear axle. It was parked near the store's dumpster. And she just felt uneasy. So she ran inside to get change. And then when she came back out, he was still watching her. She even remarked on the phone call to her friend that she didn't like the way the guy was looking at her. You know when you have those vibes. I was literally just going to say, I was like, have you ever had that feeling where you're like, there's no good happening in that head of yours? Oh, yeah. Yeah. It's a story for another time. But yeah, we've had someone drive past when I was a teenager, very slow. And we like took note. We're like, this guy's weird. And then it was a long chase. He tried, I think, to murder us. Later, he was arrested for kidnapping girls. So just an interesting tidbit. Oh, oh, fun, fun. So after she got off the phone with her friend, she was supposed to meet that same friend at the Waffle House. It was right across the street. So she got into her car to head over and she noticed that the truck was following her. I don't like it. So she got to the restaurant's lot and she noticed that there was something wrong with her van. So she stopped in the parking lot near the road and the guy from the convenience store came right up to her window. He told her that he had noticed that her tire was flat at the store and offered to help her. How convenient. So she got out and saw the driver's side front tire was flat to the rim, which to me, that tells me that it was like slashed, right? Because if you've ever had a small puncture, like something weird happened. Yeah, like your tire doesn't just go flat unless something serious happens to it, is my point. And I feel like you'd notice like when you got in that it would be like uneven, right? Yeah, it would feel like cattywampus. So he offered to look for a jack. And she thought that it was weird that he didn't then go to his toolbox to the back of his truck, but he opened the hood of the car. Don't like that. So then he was like, hey, can you get a rag out of my truck? What do you need a rag for? That's that part of changing a tire. No. So she went over, looked at the driver's side door and was like, I don't see a rag. And then he's like, no, go look at the passenger side. So when she went to look, she then felt him at her back and he had a knife blade on her throat. He pushed her into the truck. Inside the truck, she was kind of awkwardly sprawled out and her legs were across the guy's lap. And he told her, stay down, bitch. When she asked where he was taking her, he replied, Dallas, but he drove to the Motel 6. So at this point, you know, she's really scared and she just tries to talk to him and said, well, we don't have to go anywhere else. Let's just stay here. I'll stay at the hotel with you. Basically just trying to buy herself time and safety. Yeah. So trying to find a way to escape, she was like, yeah, I'll stay with you and hoped that he would go in to book the room and then she could just flee. Mm -hmm. This didn't happen, though. He then tore her shirt open and sexually assaulted her. He told her to take her pants off, but she refused. And remember, her legs are like on him still at this point. He began to drive after arguing with her to take off her pants. And he started to drive west on NASA towards the I-45. As he was driving, he was again demanding her to take off her pants. She then said, well, I have to take my shoes off first. They argued about it for a bit. And then he finally said, "Okay." So this gave her the opportunity to take her legs away from his lap to try to pretend to get her shoes off. She then noticed that the door was unlocked and opened the door to leap out. So he's driving at this point. She jumps out and he slams on his brakes and grabs the back of her shirt. She luckily was able to free herself when the t-shirt tore and she just fell out. She tumbled pretty hard across the pavement and then he put the truck in reverse. Gosh. So luckily at this exact moment, a woman named Minerva Torres was driving with her nephew and saw her waving her arms and looking hurt. She stopped and allowed Sandra to jump in. Once in the car, she explained, hey, this guy has a knife and that she didn't know who he was. Torres saved her life at this moment. She offered to take her to the hospital, but Sandra was like, no, I need to go back to the Waffle House and meet my friend who's waiting for me. 
So when they got to Waffle House, they obviously they called police. An ambulance was called. While waiting, they tried to treat the wounds that they could because remember, she jumped out of a moving vehicle. She was not in good shape. Sandra then described the man to the police and said what he was wearing. He was approximately 5'9", about 200 pounds. He had dirty blonde hair, a mustache. She also talked about how he had a lot of loose facial skin under his eyes. So she was like referring to these big bags under his eyes. She also described the truck. It was an older model white Ford or possibly Chevy dually. Um, It was a pickup with an extended cab, aluminum toolbox that was on the bed of the truck, and then it had a black stripe along the side. She also thought that it might have been a diesel truck. Then they asked Torres, and she gave a very similar description. She was taken to the St. John Hospital in Clear Lake, and she had a lot of gashes and scrapes all throughout her body. She also needed some stitches. They were concerned that she might have had internal bleeding on top of all of that. Is that from like jumping out of the truck, do you think? Yeah, of course. Like, it sounds like she, like, jumped out and tumbled pretty hard. And in the area that he was driving, I feel like they were probably going pretty fast when she jumped. I I couldn't find, like, the exact speed at that time. Yeah. So, horrible either way. She ended up having to stay three days in the hospital. And then she ended up checking into a shelter for abused women afterwards. She went to the Webster police and they created a composite sketch of the suspect. The drawing was released in a bulletin to the agencies across Texas with the truck description that she had given. At one point, she was also hypnotized by a woman named Sue Dietrich, and she was a certified forensic hypnotist. And she walked her through that night under hypnosis, hoping that she could get some more clues. But it was very painful for her to revisit what had happened to her. And something I noticed, and I was a little confused how many times she was hypnotized, but in the book, Deliver Us, it describes that not a lot of additional information was found in this particular session. But some of the news reports say that they were able to uncover some details about the abductor in the truck and like the inside of the truck. So that's why I wonder maybe it was multiple times. That makes sense. There was also an additional witness that came forward and gave the description of the man. And it happened to be the stop and go employee that gave Sandra the change when she went in to go get the phone change. So they had multiple people describing this person. I'm going to leave off here for just a bit. But remember the name Sue Dietrich. That's the one that hypnotized her. And then just a quick note about Sandra. Later on, when she does attend the trial for the suspect, she mentions that she has three children, including a three-month-old. At the time of her abduction, she was pregnant. Oof. Makes it so much worse. So we're going to put a pause in that and talk about one other before we get to the end. So we're going to talk about our last victim for the night, and that's Jessica Kane. At the time of her murder, she was 17 years old. And on August 17th of 1997, Jessica was on stage in a 50s musical revival, which adorable. And it, it went well. They got a standing ovation. And so afterwards, Jessica asked her parents if she could attend a cast party at Bennigan's. Have you ever been to a Bennigan's? I don't think so. They're a treasure, a delight. It's been a minute, but I enjoyed it. So her father, CH, and his wife, Susie, said, sure, go ahead. And they also let her stay out till 1.30 rather than midnight because that was her normal curfew. So the cast went to dinner at Bennigan's and they went back to one of the cast members' apartments to hang out. So around one in the morning, Jessica told a friend that she wasn't feeling well, so she wanted to go home. She'd left her truck at the restaurant and needed a ride back. The friend watched her get into her truck and start driving home once they had gotten to Bennigan's. So Jessica drove her father's 1992 Ford pickup truck. And so her parents had fallen asleep and they woke up around 2.30 in the morning and they realized that she wasn't home. 
Her father got into his vehicle and headed to Bennigan's. When he didn't see her or the truck, he continued to drive around. At 4 a.m., he found Jessica's truck four miles from the house. It was on the shoulder on a southbound feeder lane. And this area is also considered the small town of Lamarck. So the truck was locked and her keys, wallet, and driver's license were on the seat. The area was not far from where Shelly Sykes' car had been found, if you remember that from our 80s episode for the Texas Killing Fields. So they called the police and her father told them that she wouldn't stop for just anyone. So this is like clearly not who she is, right? It's, it's kind of abnormal for her. Right. Especially since normally she's home by midnight. So it being wee hours of the morning, strange. Yeah. So she, oddly enough, she actually owned a mobile phone too. So she had a cell phone, but she didn't take it that night. Well, I just want you to think about for a second saying those words compared to like today's teens. Nah, you turn around and you get your phone if you leave it. I mean, not just teens. Yeah. Me too. Yeah, exactly. If I like realize I'm like without my phone somewhere, I'm uncomfortable. It's so different. Ben was like once told me like, oh, I left my like he called me like when I was at work from his work to be like, I left my phone at home. And I was like, how'd you do that? Yeah, it's just so different compared to today where, you know, like had she had it, would anything have changed? It's just a lot to think of. So the Kane family had actually just recently watched the Smither case unfold, and they were devastated when her body was found. And that was something that they just never expected to happen to them. They also had search parties that were formed, and they even received help from Laura's parents, Bob and Gay Smither. And they also had help from Eddie, who is Shelley Sykes' father that we talked about in the 80s episode. And even Tim Miller, Laura Miller's father, helped with the search. It's like the Justice League, but like Texas killing field parents. Exactly. Yeah. Good analogy there. So police mentioned that two vehicles had been seen that night that could be connected to her abduction. One was a red Amigo and the other was a light colored truck with a toolbox on the back and lights across the truck. Hmm. Later that year, Sue Dietrich, the one that I was talking about, the hypnotist, became police chief of Jessica Kane's hometown, Tiki Island. On October 3rd, 1997, she drove down to Friendswood Police Department to talk to Jared Stoud about Laura Smithers' case. They discussed suspects, and then she went home. In the middle of the night, she recalled one suspect who drove a pickup truck that he had told her about and wondered, could this be the same man? And it's interesting to think of like, you know, the random late night revelation that people make? Yes. And this one happened to tie everything together. So she called Friendswood and asked the detective to compare the notes with Webster PD. The suspect in Laura Smithers' case was William, or he went by Bill, Lewis Reese. There was also a similar description of that same truck in Jessica Kane's case. Hmm. So Reese was eventually brought in for questioning. And then Sandra, remember the one that survived, who jumped out of the truck, was given a photo lineup that included his picture. And she pointed at him saying, that's the man. Oh, damn. Yeah. So he was finally brought in. And we'll discuss a little bit more on that next. Jessica's remains were not found, though, until March 18th of 2016. And it was at a dig site in a field in southeast Houston. Reese, after being brought in and everything, and after a while, obviously, led investigators to where they'd find her remains. And investigators spent weeks looking and then we're finally able to find them he had buried her using a bulldozer remember he was a bulldozer operator fuck this guy Mm -hmm. and it wasn't until may of 2016 that they were even confirmed to be jessica's using dna 
On September 1st of 2016, a grand jury in Galveston indicted Reese for murdering Jessica. So we're going to talk a little bit about William Bill Lewis Reese. So his prior offenses were similar to Sapol's abduction, and he had been released after serving time for sexual attacks from 1986. So he had once held a victim from Oklahoma at knife point, and another woman had been abducted along the side of a highway when her car had broken down. So on October 16th of 1997, police had warrants, one for his arrest and an additional search warrant for his home and his truck. They also photographed a black cowboy hat inside his apartment. Think the black cowboy hat he wore at the stop and go. Mm -hmm. Inside the truck, there were two knives. He was arrested and taken to Houston Police Department's Southeast Command Center. And that's where Sandra was able to identify him out of a lineup. Once the papers ran the stories, police got tips from other women who had felt uncomfortable around Reese. I have to imagine that he's the kind of guy that like when you see him, like the hair on your arms kind of like stands up like, don't turn your back on this guy. He is. Yeah, he looks terrifying. One of the pieces of evidence they found, it was fibers that had been found on Laura Smithers' socks. And what they were was they matched an Afghan that was on the back of Smith's couch. And it was the fibers were also found on his truck's floor mats, too. In 1998, he went to trial for kidnapping Sandra Sapol. Unfortunately, there wasn't enough conclusive evidence to make a strong enough murder case for the Smither family at that time. So during the trial, the stop-and-go clerk identified him as the man that he had seen the night of the abduction outside in the parking lot for Sandra. Reese was found guilty of aggravated kidnapping. During the sentencing phase, two women who Reese had been convicted of assaulting in Oklahoma took the stand, and he received a 60-year sentence. So Reese was also a suspect in an Oklahoma murder, and it was the murder of Tiffany Dobry Johnson, who was abducted from the Sunshine Car Wash in Bethany, Oklahoma. She disappeared on July 26th of 1997. This would have been between Laura Smithers' murder and when Jessica Kane disappeared. He also knew Tiffany's family. The state of Oklahoma filed two counts against Reese for the death of Tiffany one of first-degree murder and the other for kidnapping. In 2016, after being linked to the Oklahoma case using DNA, he began his confessions. There's a lot of information on the confessions, but we're mainly going to be talking about the ones that are linked to the Texas killing fields. Reese confessed to the murder of Laura Smither, but claimed he did it accidentally. Accidentally? Yes. So remember, it was raining that day. She went for her jog. He said he accidentally hit her with his truck because it was raining and the windshield wipers weren't working. But then later he said he hit her, found her crying from obviously being hit, panicked, and then accidentally killed her then. I don't believe that. Not even a little bit. So he also led law enforcement to the remains of Jessica Kane and another woman he killed named Kelly Cox, who was also from Texas. And he did this in an attempt to keep the death penalty off the table. But Oklahoma County District Attorney David Pratter refused to make the deal. Apparently, and here's where I couldn't find too much on it, but apparently a Texas Ranger named Ranger Holland said that he would do everything in his power to get prosecutors to take the death penalty off the table. He gave information for one body, but then it was taking longer than expected. And then he finally said, quote, fuck it, they can go ahead and give me the needle. I ain't got no family anyway. And then gave the second location. Yeah, like, what are the odds? Yeah. And when I was reading about this Texas Ranger, I was like, is it the same Ranger Holland from Sam Little's case? The one that they bring in to do, like, the interrogations? I think it might be, but I couldn't find definitive proof. 
what are the odds that there's like a different serial killer like Holland in Texas? Exactly. I'm pretty sure it's the same Ranger Holland because it seems like he was the one that was like, okay, this is his personality. I can't go that route trying to get a confession. I have to go this route. Yeah. Interesting. I'm happy to report that earlier this year, this asshole received the sentence of the death penalty in Oklahoma for the murder of Tiffany Johnson. He never actually testified, but the jurors listened to the confessions that not only included Tiffany's murder from Oklahoma, but the murders and kidnappings from Texas as well. I mean, I feel like this is a no brainer that he didn't need to be around anymore. No. So I'm really happy that he did receive. I mean, there's very few people that I'm like, they should receive the death penalty. And this is one of them because he was just going around terrorizing girls in different states, killing them and then like changing his story. And then, yeah, he's a bulldozer operator that's burying girls with his bulldozer. He doesn't need to be alive. I guess my thing, too, is that I keep saying, like, I'm against the death penalty, except for this case. Like, every, I feel like every episode, I'm like, no death penalty, but this guy surely deserves to die. So maybe I'm not against the death penalty. I don't know. When you, when you hear about the worst of the worst in terms of people, it really makes you reconsider your thoughts on it. It does. But I also think like the ones where you're like, oh, my gosh, they probably killed the wrong person. Not all. There's a lot of there's a lot of stuff out there. So don't say all. But a lot of them are from very long ago where DNA testing wasn't where it is today, where, yeah, it was kind of up in the air. But like, I'm sure there's some that slipped through the cracks that are incorrect. But in a lot of these cases now, it's like, hmm. Your DNA is everywhere. Yeah. No, you're absolutely right. I mean, I think when you don't have like an 100% where you're like, oh, we know this guy did it. Okay, maybe not. But when you do, I Exactly. Yeah. So these were most of the ones from the 90s. There's even another one and some from the 2000s that we're going to discuss on our next Texas Killing Fields episode. Yeah. I mean, we're nearing the end. It's been exhausting. It has been. Ah. Uh-huh. But I do think that this is it's an interesting group of crimes generally. But I think also it really shines a spotlight on some systemic issues in terms of like in our criminal justice system. I think it's also like a good lens to like see how things work and how they've evolved. Exactly. And if you've enjoyed listening to our show, please take a few minutes and leave us a review on iTunes or on Facebook. And if you do, shoot us a message and we would be happy to send you a sticker. Yeah, we would love to send you a sticker. We have some cute ones. Yeah, we do. Not to brag, but they're pretty cute. Is our birthday, podiversary, whatever you want to call it, is coming up in October. So excited. So we've been podcasting for a whole year and it's crazy. So we thought because that was coming up, we wanted to do a special episode and we want to have our listeners help us out and be included in the episode. And with that, we are taking scary story submissions. So if you have a spooky story, either personal, something that happened to a friend or a family member, and you want to share it with us for the episode, there's two ways you can do it. You can jot it down and email it, or you can record it so we can hear your beautiful voices and we'll have you in our episode. Yeah, you can legitimately creep with us. Yes. So if you want to be included, email us at truecreepspod at gmail.com with your story or audio. And if you mess up in your audio, if you cough or something or you re-say something, Lindsay and I will edit it. So don't be scared of recording it because we'll help you out. Yeah. 
So the submission deadline for the stories is September 24th. And on the email itself, if you can put in the subject line, listener stories, so that we can make sure we know who you are and what it's for, add your pronouns and your name. Or if you'd like to remain anonymous, we can do that for you too. I'm just so excited. Me too. I can't wait to hear these stories. And we've already gotten a couple. They're good. And they're so good. Yeah. And with that, have a great weekend. Thanks for creeping with us. Thanks for listening. For more information on our sources, please visit our website, truecreeps.com. If you'd like to follow us on social media, you can follow us on Instagram at truecreepspod, on Facebook at facebook.com slash truecreepspod, and on Twitter at truecreeps. We'd love for you to keep creeping with us. So if you like this episode, please subscribe, rate, review, and share the show with your fellow creeps.